Welcome to the 290th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome literature and medicine scholar and poet, Travis Chi-Wing Lau. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I just want to take a moment here to acknowledge the outstanding job that Felicia Henry did yesterday as the first guest host of COVID Calls and her interview with Dan Berger on prisons and the pandemic it was a insightful conversation, expertly hosted by Felicia, and I want to let you know she's going to be back for another episode of COVID Calls as the host on Monday, June 21st. So please do join COVID Calls on June 21st for Felicia Henry's second guest hosting. As of today, June 15th, 2021, there are 3,813,679 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. 599,960 of those deaths are in the United States. 488,228 people have died of COVID-19 in Brazil. South Korea at this time is reporting 1,992 deaths to COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is Shanka Ghosh, a political humanist. This appeared April 23rd, 2021 in the Indian Express. The passing of Shanka Ghosh, 89, Lost to COVID-19 marks the end of a generation of Bengali poets who captured the cadences of the land and the language in all its colloquialism. But this encapsulation was never a simplification. It sparkled with a rare understanding of the intellectual and visceral pulse of his milieu. Born in Chandpur, now in Bangladesh, in 1932, Ghosh was a quintessential academic. He was a critic and a storyteller, a linguist interested in etymology, but it was in poetry that his genius most manifested itself. After the first flush of modernism in Bengali literature that came with writers and poets such as Jivananda Das, Buddhadeva, Bose, Vishnu Day, and Samar Sen, the birth of the little magazine Kritibash in 1953 ushered in a new wave. Meant as a platform for upcoming poets, it nurtured poets such as Ghosh, who formed a new identity for contemporary Bengali poetry one that sought a deeper engagement with middle-class preoccupations, employment, politics, ambition, idealism, and love, and a more cosmopolitan idiom for their verse. In collections such as Denguli Ratguli, 
translated as days and nights, or Panjor Tanara Shabdo, translated as the sound of oars in my ribs, Ghosh broke out with his experiments in meter and theme, writing with a plumb on love and capitalism, communal violence, and the process of aging. There are numerous instances of the unflagging political humanism of the self-effacing poet who turned up in congregations to protest the 2002 Gujarat riots and the violence in Nandigram in 2007, who wrote against the Citizenship Amendment Act and the murders of public intellectuals. But perhaps what Ghosh most represented for his readers was a mirror in which they could see themselves unvarnished, sometimes in love, sometimes in need of redemption. That's the obituary of poet Shankar Ghosh. I'm going to read one brief poem by the Bengali poet. This is titled, For a Dead Friend. This time, our tranquil celebration has no chair earmarked for you. This time, beneath the Arjun or the Teak, there lies only an ancient destruction that the terracotta of the lowered face would break this way was not what you had imagined. That you're not here today is natural. That you're here once is unbelievable. Picking up the pot shard with both hands can even turn the sky into stone writing. Time comes to a halt near the heart. Half the evening languishes on the ground. Take our pauperized memories at that hour just the way we want to give them to you. That you're not here today is natural. That you were here once is unbelievable. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Travis Chi-Wing Lau. Travis joined the Kenyan College of Faculty in 2020 and is Assistant Professor of English. His research and teaching focuses on the intersections between literature and medicine and the longer histories of disability and pathology. He's currently working on a book manuscript entitled Insecure Immunity, Inoculation and Anti-Vaccination, 1720 to 1898 a project which explores the British cultural history of immunity and vaccination in the 18th and 19th centuries. Alongside his scholarship, Lau frequently writes for venues of public scholarship like Synapsis, a journal of health humanities, public books, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. His poetry has appeared in Barron Magazine, Word Gathering, Glass, The New Engagement, as well as in two chapbooks of poetry. Travis. Chi Wing Lao, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. It's a joy to be here. So glad we're in conversation. Would like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and give us a pandemic update from there. Sure. Um, I'm currently in Columbus, Ohio. I'm right downtown um, in a historic building called the Levesque Tower. Um, and the pandemic, for the most part, here has in many ways uh, been fairly mitigated by um, the vaccine rollout. Uh, vaccines are relatively uh, accessible now. And I think today, if I can remember correctly, we are just under 60 or so cases total. Um, so that was a marked difference than the extremely high numbers we had at one point um, during the fall. So it's it's good to see, but I don't think we're out of the woods yet by any means. And your students there at Kenyon, I mean, it's a true college town, so they've already gone home at this point? 
Yeah, so Columbus is about an hour uh, and 10 minutes away from Gambier, uh, Ohio, where uh, Kenyon is located, and the students have left for the semester uh, with the full expectation that in the fall we'll all be in person. That's at least our uh, optimistic outlook for our plan in the fall. And how did it work in terms of bringing, you know, campuses tried a thousand dis- different permutations of social distance and, and campus return. So the students there did return to campus in the spring of this year. Is that right? Yes. So we actually had uh, 50% of students uh, in the fall and spring, and it was split by class. Um, so we had uh, freshmen and sophomores uh, in the fall and then juniors and seniors with some sophomores returning. But the idea was that we wanted our freshmen to have um, a, a semester on campus because of just how formative that experience is. Uh, but that was our strategy. And I think because of our geographic isolation um, and pretty strict testing uh, protocol, we we got away with quite um, quite a low number of cases total across both semesters. So we're very fortunate. Well, thanks for that, that update from Ohio. And I have started asking a, a question relatively recently in the last few weeks of guests who are based in the United States, which is about memory. It's not appropriate to ask that for guests who are based in some other parts of the world, but based mm-hmm. on what you're telling me in Ohio, we could talk about memory a little bit. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe one of your strongest impressions or memories of the past 18 months. Mm. In some ways, that question is so difficult to answer because I still feel like I'm, I have this deferred experience or delayed experience of processing the events that are still happening. My instinct for some reason is to recall the uh, the month I moved here almost a full year ago when I moved to Columbus in the midst of the pandemic um, and going to the airport and just seeing how starkly empty it was. Um, my partner is a pilot. Um, so he, for him, he was flying throughout the pandemic uh, with a reduced flight load, but still in the airport. So for him, it wasn't remarkable, but for me, it was haunting uh, just to be in the airport and see just how few people there are, uh, but also just how uncomfortable people were in each other's presence. Um, And I could feel that. And I just remember sitting there, I was with my cat who I I brought with me onto the plane. Mm -hmm. And it it was just a haunting feeling of, Definitely, we were in a very different set of circumstances and moving in the midst of that pandemic, just it just felt very surreal to do. But if you were to sort of ask me again, the other thing I, I'm thinking about is something that I've been trying very hard to describe as part of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people have noted this, but also had difficulties putting into words, but it's kind of its banality, this idea of every day kind of feeling the same. Um, everyone joking about how, you know, is this just an extended March 2020 over and over and over again? Um, and I, I I really feel that way. Sometimes I, I can't tell months and days apart. So when, when you ask that question, I had to really think about a very uh, sort of visual moment where I was in an airport that had sort of uh, mm-hmm. an intense sensory part to it. Uh, otherwise, I really couldn't, I couldn't recall exact moments throughout the past 18 months. Thanks for sharing that, and that really resonates with me. And and thanks for sharing the your memory of the airport. Uh, I've been writing um, recently. Been working on a project which which starts with September 11, and and in fact, that's my strongest association of that day, is yeah. I was flying that day, and I I was in a, in a, seeing an empty airport, and then also this sort of uncertainty 
um, that people had around airports. And so it's in two different kinds of disasters, but it speaks somehow to spaces where we don't even pay attention to the amount of traffic and flow. It's just part of the ambience that we expect. And then when it's not happening, it's really arresting, isn't it? Yes. Um, a friend of mine said, you know, there's something very ironic about um, airports having terminals and it's kind of a gallows humor mm -hmm. joke, but mm -hmm. it really felt death-like. Um, it was extremely quiet. All the stores had shut down. Um, and it was just pockets of people who were extremely uncomfortable being around one another. Um, and that that was really striking to me. Masks had definitely gone into effect, but there was it was not as normalized yet at that moment. Um, so it was it was strange. It's very strange. I'll never think about my rush to get to the terminal quite the same again after you said that. <laughs> uh, that's good. It's a good note for, for living. Um, uh, let's turn a bit to some other things. You've been so busy through this time, even though it's you describe it sort of felt like a amorphous, you know, chunk of time. But um, let's go back to last year. And on February 7th, 2020, um, you're great on Twitter, by the way. And people who are not following uh, Travis should on Twitter. There's a lot of illumination there. But you you shared on February 7th of last year. I'm just going to read. Um, sure. You tweeted, cleared my throat and coughed in an elevator today and got my first ugly look from someone who clearly was afraid I had coronavirus. Can you talk about the incident and and the timing of that? I mean, that's COVID was known, but to people in the United States, it was known through the media, community spread hadn't been reached in the US yet. Take us back to that moment. It's really strange to recall that moment because it was just before people were taking it seriously as a thing. So just for context, um, I was still living in Austin, Texas where I was a postdoctoral fellow um, at UT Austin. So this was my second year uh, I was wrapping up there. Um, but I was essentially in my apartment elevator um, and I simply cleared my throat. I neither coughed and I, I just simply cleared my throat because it was dry and was allergy season. Um, and I'll never forget this particular look and folks of color, uh, queer folks, we all know this look. It is this look of disgust and outrage that this um, younger white woman gave me um, as we were sitting in the elevator. Um, and I, I was just so stunned by it because it was, it, it seems so overly dramatic for something that was relatively minor. And of course the petty person that I am is as she was leaving the elevator to get off of the, at her floor, I said, well, you know, racism is more contagious. And her look was equally as disgusted uh, that I even called her out on it. Uh, but I didn't realize just how many more events like that would happen to friends and family. Um, and then, you know, it became really intensified over these past few months. And it's horrifying because it, it all seems all too familiar. So what a time capsule from that time. And, and I'm, I'm sorry you had that experience. And, and yet, I'm glad you can share it with us because I feel like in some ways that was the premonition somehow. I don't know if you saw it that way. I mean, the tweet went viral and you yeah. wrote later about even that usage, we've talked about terminals now, let's talk about virality. Um, you got a lot of reaction to that piece. Um, how did it strike you, you know, the, the comments that maybe were coming in, some of which I expect were probably not too nice? I still get them, which is something that people are surprised by, but that 
that tweet and then the subsequent piece I wrote on it and my short interview with Al Jazeera, um, it put me on a bunch of um, alt-right hate lists. Um, and I just became a very convenient target, um, especially in the wake of that um, video that was released regarding a woman who was presumed to be Chinese, she was not, uh, who was supposedly consuming a bat. Um, it was very unfortunate to see the kinds of like blatantly racist trolling that I got in the wake of that. But I think now that I reflect on it, I think I said this in the piece as well as in my interview, but none of this is new. I mean, we've the the legacy of anti-Asian racism in the U.S. is, I think, more a problem of cultural amnesia than it is something new. Um, and it annoys me sometimes when I hear news coverage saying that, you know, this is unprecedented anti-Asian racism. It's like, have you seen the United States history? Um, I... Uh, I, it's almost one of those things where I'm not happy to essentially see history repeating itself. Some people are like, oh my gosh, you kind of in some ways anticipated what was happening. I'm like, I'm not proud of this. This is not a great feeling to have essentially uh, anticipated what is now happening on, an, on a national scale. Um, so it's, it's sad to me, uh, but just a reminder of just how much work we have to do culturally. You wrote about it in a essay that people can find on Synapsis, and I'll put the link up in a minute, but the, um, you really captured it very movingly, and I hope people read the essay. You wrote, a consequence of social life, specifically urban social life, is an inevitable exposure of oneself to risk. What risks are understood as justified, worthwhile, or even unfathomable? And to what links will we mitigate them? These are questions you're asking. And I thought that was a really useful way to think not only about your experience in the elevator, but then everything that's followed for the last 15 months about this idea of risk as a type of ongoing social negotiation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a mortality chart. It is, you know, there's actuaries and there's risk experts and there's people out there who do that. But for most of us, um, it is a negotiation, but I'm I'm curious, you know, what happens when the negotiations break down, as they have so frequently seemed to recently. Mm. So I'm thinking about this this line um, by a, a theorist named Francois Ewald, and um, Ewald describes modernity as being characterized by risk being instantiated in human bodies. And the pandemic has made that so abundantly clear to me what that means. Um, and I think a lot about the, the controversies, especially around vaccination masking, that are actually about negotiating risks, the sort of inevitability of risk, um, and how risk has become legible to people in really clear ways, that if I'm in proximity to a series of people who may not be vaccinated and who may not be masked, they feel risk and see risk differently, or perhaps in a way they haven't before. Um, and I think about how that risk is then further mediated by other forms of identity. So for instance, my, my very legibly Chinese American body in that elevator read as risk to that young woman uh, who had not necessarily had to see my body as risky before, but may have in other sort of subconscious ways, right? Um, so I think about how so many of our debates currently 
are about who gets to be exposed to risk and which risks matter and which people's risks get to be seen as more um, serious than others. Um, and I feel like that's very much how I've been thinking about the pandemic, um, especially as it's being lived out um, globally in such disproportionate ways. And the way you describe that, you know, um, thinking about that context again in that moment of time in which Trump's xenophobia, and I don't want to put it just on Trump um, because I think he's, he's part of a much larger and much longer story, as you point to in, in American history. But this anti-Asian racism really became an article of faith to many in the U.S. and elsewhere as a, I think, in part as a way to signify attentiveness to risk. I hadn't quite thought of it this way until I read your piece and in, in, in this discussion that that it was it is racism and it is politically calculated racism on Trump's part, certainly, and those who traffic in this kind of thing. But at the same time, it also gave too many people a place to park their fears, I think. Absolutely. I, li I like how you describe it that way, right? So if fears are a, a series of um, anxieties that we collect and hold with us as baggage, it became very easy to, to call something the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus to then park those anxieties there. Um, and it, it became even more obvious to me just how easy that move was rhetorically and culturally when we're now talking about the variants and how resistant um, people are in the West, for instance, in Great Britain, uh, to calling it the Great Britain variant. Uh, and then I believe it's the WHO um, that is now using, um, I believe is it the Greek alphabet to signify variants mm -hmm. rather than geographical location. And it's funny that this finally happened once Western nations became uh, sort of sites of variants rather than other countries that have long been um, vilified for their association with the virus. And it's really interesting and horrifying at the same time that somehow as long as the variant is orientalized, then it's it's okay. But the minute it's the, you know, UK variant or the, you know, Long Beach variant or whatever it may be, um, and I don't I'm not aware of anything in California. I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. Um, is if an American or a, a Anglophone variant, it has to be called something else. Um, you know, that naming does really matter throughout this this time and i i guess you know just a, a kind of one final reflection on this as a person who's incredibly attentive to language and the use of language when trump was using those kinds of terms what did you think they could be weaponized so quickly and, I, and i'm trying to put some things together in time here your tweet your experience early on in february and then the kind of language that he started to use which i'm not going to repeat but which characterizes the virus as a as an asian amorphous asian thing or chinese thing more specifically did you think that the words could could literally start to carry so much violence so quickly could I, can, I don't have the background to share that experience or that fear. So I was surprised at how quickly it happened. But that's my own experience, and I'm not, um, I'm not the right person to ask that question, though. I think the sad answer is yes, because I've seen the ways in which historically um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have been so easily vilified in violent forms, right? I'm thinking about 
um, sort of uh, 20th century yellow peril narratives about sort of Asian bodies as dangerous and risky um, and how easy confrontations with risk often involve violence because risk is seen as something that one should not be exposed to. And here, I mean, I asked this question in the essay too, which is uh, the, the profound irony is that um, I am an American citizen. So this idea of my, of my legibly Chinese American body um, as inherently more risky is it's a series of fictions too, right? That these, these are kinds of fictions that um, people like Trump need to perpetuate in order to situate themselves as say the victims of risk or uh, being exposed to risk unnecessarily and in need of protection. So I, I don't, I am not in the least bit surprised that to protect oneself, protect oneself from risk, it often takes violence, right? Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Travis Chiwing Lao today. Travis, let's talk a little bit about your book project, and, mm. and let's leave the present aside for a minute. Sometimes it gets so grim when you're a historian. <laughs> you're like, well, let's go back in time, but surprise. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it is a refuge of sorts, I, I feel, in, in sometimes when I'm doing historical work. And, and you're, so you're working on a project called Insecure Immunity, and mm. Um, looking at the history of vaccination in the UK. So tell us a bit about the project. And I, I want to hear about the project is sort of empirically and conceptually, but also how you see some linkages across time as well. So uh, in some ways, uh, our decision to try to avoid the present is counter to how I've imagined this project, which is a very presentist one. Um, I'm actually responding to a, a similar, um, weirdly, uh, anachronistic and ahistorical description of anti-vaccination as new and modern. And I hear this among academics, among uh, family and friends, that um, I hear people say, oh, well, I, you know, anti-vaccination of this form just seems so new. It This doesn't seem like something that's existed before, um, particularly the um, anti-disability and anti-autism bent of a lot of anti-vaccination discourse. Um, and I started to ask a series of questions. Is that true? Uh, or is there a much longer history that we're neglecting in our conversation? And I'm partially responding um, to uh, the way in which science and medicine has responded to anti-vaccination by insisting on science's um, unquestionable truth and fact. And I think it's important, one, to respond to this very explicit anti-science uh, bent of a lot of anti-vaxxers. I think that's important. But I think if it were as simple, if the, the issue was re, if, if the issue was reducible to simply the science of immunity, we would be done with this problem, right? It's a series of cultural problems. And it is always surprising to me um, to hear people in public health and people in STEM 
who fundamentally do not take seriously the cultural and rhetorical history of exactly these issues. We didn't just arrive at this moment. This, as, as the book tries to argue, it's centuries old. Um, and I'm thinking about the very early moment when um, Edward Jenner uh, popularizes vaccination at the end of the 18th century, there was an intense anxiety around uh, a condition called cow mania. The idea that if you are substituting cowpox for smallpox to inoculate people, people might quite literally turn into cows. And we can joke about how ridiculous that sounds. But the idea here was that there was a true danger in vaccinating people, especially children, because it would render them cognitively disabled. And to me, that sounds a lot like the anti-autism arguments that I hear now, right? I would rather my child die of a contagious disease than have my child live a life of autism. And I wanna think very much about the ideological position of that. Uh, and for me, the answer is a historical one rather than uh, a sort of it's common sense science one because that isn't working, I think, in our in our discourse. So in, in the period of time that, that you're writing, what are some of the methods that what we now would call public health, um, you know, the medical establishment maybe at that time, how do they overcome those concerns. And I, I like that you're, you know, the, the science, okay, let's put a pin in that. Yes. But the reality is if everyone made their decision about risk based on science, as you said, we wouldn't have um, the kinds of things that we see in the U.S. with a declining vaccination rate as, as time goes on, it would be increasing until you used all the supply and everybody was vaccinated. Obviously culture plays a role. So how did doctors at that time meet culture? So my, my answer is sort of in two forms. One is we're, I'm thinking about a moment prior to what we now think of as a complete divide between uh, the sciences and the humanities, first, first of all. And the, and the second thing, we are at a moment prior to the professionalization of medicine. So there's a lot of overlap uh, and negotiations happening even within the profession of medicine that had to respond to culture inevitably. Um, the rise of medicine is a uh, as a negotiation with culture. And uh, something that I, I try to do in this book is to problematize the presumed divide between pro and anti-vax and see how they actually share vocabularies. And one of them is the, the child, the figure of the child. Um, just as anti-vaxxers were saying that uh, children were the most innocent potential victims of the neglect of state medicine, uh, pro-vaxxers and state physicians were saying, these are our most vulnerable. How do I frame the kind of scare tactics necessary to effectively galvanize people to take seriously vaccination as a protection of our most vulnerable? That to me sounds like the most um, elementary of public health strategies, but it took uh, really, really um, unanticipated literary forms um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, propaganda pamphlets a lot of um, sort of news media that frames vaccination as a, a panacea for a nation's problems right and I think that those to think of the fictions that are being told on both sides is is a really interesting way of historicizing these ongoing debates but also thinking about how this is never really only a biological problem. Does in the period of time that you're writing about, and it's a, it's a long stretch of time, so mm -hmm. at some maybe at some point in there, I don't know if you find um, that anti-vaccination aligns with 
political party or aligns with a re- religious affiliation? Does it does it track neatly at various points into sort of other um, more stable institutional identities? As I've been quite mm-hmm. surprised actually to see that anti-vaccination around COVID, it's not a mainstream GOP position, but the overlap there is pretty striking in certain parts of the United States. Those two are absolutely correlated, if not causal. And I, I don't think we've seen it quite aligned that way in American history up to this point. Others who know more could correct me, but I don't think that's, I don't think we've seen that. Do you see cases like that in the history you're writing about? I, I'm inclined to agree with you that that element of it, that perfect tracking between, say, uh, someone who is right-leaning who w- would also be anti-vax, I don't think that was the case in the 18th and 19th centuries, at least in Britain. You might argue that there are sort of um, precursors to that, but what was so fascinating about anti-vaccination is that it cut across um, ideology and party line, right? You could have um, extremely liberal uh, um, people, especially in Britain, say, this is, uh, I object to this not uh, in terms of sort of religious fundamentalism or conservatism, but about individual liberty and rights. Um, and it, it, it was very much framed in a way that I think people on the left would be actually quite sympathetic to. Uh, but that's what makes the, the debate so interesting to me because it doesn't have that convenient mapping. It's messy in, in the kind of historical way uh, that I feel like is consistently sidelined in the way we talk about it now. It's interesting because that messiness, when it defies sort of conventional institutional framing, it allows us to then see um, alignments and cultural values that we hadn't thought of before. And, and even in this discussion, I'm sort of thinking there's a default position that anti vaccination skepticism, let's say, or mm-hmm. even outright anti vaccination is, yes. is a cultural, can be described as a cultural position. Mm-hmm. But being in favor of vaccination is also a cultural position. Absolutely. But I I don't think we talk about that very much. And there is a resistance to calling it that because I think people in public health uh, and folks who are proponents of vaccination do not want to further politicize their position, right? Because it's already being framed as a political issue to depoliticize it and naturalize it as the correct one, even though that is also a cultural fiction, uh, is like a weird uh, apprehension that I see a lot of people doing. But it mm-hmm. is, it absolutely is a position. And I think if you look at the, say, Victorian uh, public health discourse surrounding vaccination, it was absolutely ideological. It was about the future of the nation, about how the nation reproduces, about who gets to be in that future, right? That there, To me, there's nothing more ideological than that. I think that's so useful because then it, it provokes further examination of the way science and technology move through society and the way they become either sort of vessels of trust or distrust and how that's in, unstable over time. You, you wrote... Um, also, another one of the great essays you wrote throughout the pandemic, you've written about medical humanities, of which you are a practitioner. Um, and so you you write, I think, it's, it's critical, but it's so helpful um, it, as a form of criticism to think about the position of medical humanities in the academy across this pandemic period. And what, do I, what do you mean by that? I'm just going to read a sentence of, of this. You write, the medical humanities have become increasingly popular in medical schools and STEM departments, 
often because institutions and administrations can point to it as a symbol of interdisciplinarity while co-opting it as a safe field that remains in the service of medicine. And so, I mean, just to tell on myself, I mean, as a historian who's now working in my second engineering school, so I guess I'm always going to be the historian who, who works in an engineering school, and that's fine. I'm a historian of technology. But I have often seen the history of technology used in that same way, sort of picked up by engineers. And I don't, they don't do it in, in bad spirit. They pick it up and they say, hey, I can get a handle. I never liked history, but I like this because this makes sense. And what unfortunately has often gets drained out is in the, in the criticality. It just seems to serve the sort of broader agenda of technoscience. You seem to be describing a similar phenomenon with medical humanities. Absolutely. Um, and I think to be, to be precise about it, medical humanities from its inception was born in medical schools, right? So it was a, it was a field that sought to better practitioners to make them more ethical, compassionate, more capable practitioners. And I think sometimes we forget that medical humanities originated there. Um, and I think this is why I think nominally I prefer health humanities over medical humanities because I think the health humanities as itself a kind of uh, wide-ranging interdisciplinary field is, is very much embracing that critical perspective of saying that we can be absolutely critical of uh, the medical industrial complex, of its practices, its theories, uh, because we are not beholden to the very systems in which our institute, uh, our uh, field comes from. So one of my, my critiques in that essay is that it's very telling to me that a lot of the scholarship in say early medical humanities and even some medical humanities scholars who are based out of medical schools, there is a, a kind of uh, embrace of medical progress and innovation without the sort of critical engagement that say fields like disability studies uh, or even critical race studies has forced us very rightly to confront, right? How do we talk about medical racism? Um, and I, I think we're finally seeing these conversations happen. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the very recent debacle uh, with JAMA, the Journal of American uh, Medical Association and their refusal to call racism what it is, uh, to identify systemic racism as a thing that affects um, American healthcare and the way medicine is sort of lived out. Um, so I think the health, this is a long way to say that, I think the health humanities is really responding to these critiques and really thinking about how its earlier form, the medical humanities still is beholden to institutional structures that don't want us to be critical of medicine, right? These are medical schools that say, we we want you to bring the humanities because it, it brings funding, um, it makes our students more well-rounded, and I put this in quotation marks, but when it comes to sort of criticizing what we do, that's not what we see the medical humanities doing. It's interesting, I, and I wonder how you how you see the possibilities right now. Every time I've had an opportunity to talk with a medical educator in the last, since I've been doing COVID calls, I always ask them how, I, how they think medical education is changing through this time. And I've heard many of them speak very movingly about just this. I don't think they've used the term health humanities, but this sort of like, this sort of saying, well, some version of, I wish we'd thought more 
about the social implications of medicine or the lack of access of medicine. And it's the pandemic which has shown us this, but also Black Lives Matter movement that has shown that as well. And I've had a couple of medical educators say there's no going back now for medical schools, but the institutional weight of any kind of professional education um, militates against engagement in the social, usually. So I wonder how you see this this moment as an opportunity to bring some critical thinking into these curricula, which are often very tight, very powerful, and have a lot of momentum. So I'm, I'm of two minds about this. I have the sort of cynical one, which is that it's really interesting to see the rise of health humanities and sort of critical approaches to medicine really coming into their moment in in the wake of COVID, right? It makes so much sense why these issues matter, but it is these very same humanities programs that are facing budget crises, right? And could be easily eliminated, but medical schools, right, are are seeing a, a, a great benefit to that, right? They, it's so clear why medicine matters. Um, and I, I worry about this where medical schools get to claim that they do interdisciplinary humanities work while systematically working to eliminate the very programs that allow such training. Uh, and there was a very um, unfortunate mm. debate um, in, in the health humanities uh, email listserv about um, a, a very, I think, right critique where humanity scholars were critical of um, folks in medicine and science simply sort of uh, picking a, a, an object, a critical object from, say, a poem or a play, um, writing on it and claiming expertise and bypassing humanistic training because everyone can engage with literature. It's so obvious as a universal thing that we don't need expertise for it. And I, I find that to be particularly troubling uh, because I think STEM has an opportunity to say, hey, if you look at the history, we actually are not really the completely divided two cultures that C.P. Snow claimed that they were. We actually were interconnected for so much of, of history. Um, but here they are actually furthering that by saying that we just don't need humanistic expertise um, to do this kind of work. And I, I wonder, are we going to now have doctors that are going to claim uh, themselves to be health humanists having sort of written on a single poem or novel? And that's not to say that I don't want STEM practitioners in, in our field. Some of my closest colleagues are folks in STEM programs. But I think this is where interdisciplinarity cannot be just a buzzword, right? You have to do the difficult work of actually training yourself in the fields you claim to be intervening in. And I, I think that's 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 the ugly part of interdisciplinarity that um, institutions and universities don't like to actually talk about, right? What does it mean that we just have a panoply of voices, uh, but we don't actually talk about what it means to talk across disciplines? I wonder how how that critique might extend to disability studies. It seems like I mean it's been a field for a while, and it's um, people who are researchers in disability studies. Uh, you know, they can be sometimes in nursing schools, or they're in colleges of arts and sciences. Um, they're in literature programs. They can come from a variety of different places in the institution. Which to me, when I look for like a vibrant, like emerging interdiscipline or exciting new disciplinary formation, I always look for the ones that exist in four or five colleges across campus, because that's where you really started, you know, climate change was that 10 years ago. And I think disability studies 
fits that, and we are certainly in a profound moment of disability justice mm-hmm. and the need for disability justice. I wonder if you could reflect on that as well. And people are discovering th- through the pandemic, oh, wow, you know, this is what it's been like for people with a disability um, to not have access. And now we've, we've g- given them access. These are debates and discussions that um, are old hat, I think, for people yeah. in the disability justice movement. And now a lot of Americans and people around the world are, are becoming aware of it. But I do worry the same as you're describing the kind of um, medical humanities, health humanities debate and tension. This is a moment of opportunity, but also a moment of peril, maybe, for people who who work in that area, of which you are one. My instinct is to respond, again, both with, on the one hand, cynicism, and the other hand, optimism. So something that has already really been deeply troubling to me is a lot of the gains that we made as a community in in the pandemic are already disappearing. I'm thinking about accessibility in terms of digital events uh, or accommodations for students and faculty, things that were um, happily granted in the pandemic or maybe not so happily granted during the pandemic are already being walked back. Um, I see academic programs all the time saying that they don't want to offer Uh, They don't want to do academic conferences in any virtual form anymore uh, or recordings or captioning their events anymore because there isn't a need anymore. Um, And it's it's terrifying because it's really funny to see how disability justice is. It only is real to people when enough people are experiencing it. Uh, and something that I've been thinking a lot about right now is the the sort of specter of long COVID and sort of the lifelong disabilities that many people who have um, either recovered from or are still living with COVID um, still live with, right? We don't have research on those disabilities and the forms that they take, um, but this is where disability uh, thinking and activism actually provides us a really great set of models for thinking about what care looks like, what more ethical care looks like. But those conversations are are already vanishing um, as we return to normal. Uh, and I, I find that phrase also um, incredibly unsettling because uh, a return suggests that we were normal in the first place. And normal in this case means able-bodied. And I, I, I hear that a lot from my, my colleagues in, in the field and uh, fellow activists. Uh, I'm thinking about folks like Alice Wong who have, been in the, who have been in this fight for a really long time and they're seeing their work on the one hand be validated in incredible ways, but then immediately walked back. Um, so I, I, have, I have a lot of reservations about what at, sort of at first glance seems like a validation of of access and to see the word accessibility be used in more ways than I've ever seen before, but then sort of the almost immediate walking back of that once the pandemic has become under control in the US. And we know that's not the case globally. I mean, just to take this a step further, because I think you've put that very economically and very in very usefully that, you know, the sort of granting of access and even the sort of power dynamics that are wrapped up in that, even the way I framed the question earlier, you know, that there's there's a sort of norm, which is one way, and then somehow the powers that be grant access to a broader range of people. What are the options to to preserve that somehow? I mean, I guess I, I wonder, you know, from within the context of people who are are advocating for disability 
rights and justice, what are the options right now? As we as we do see this strong urge to return to normal in the United States, which is less access, no doubt about it. I think my answer actually recalls how we started this conversation, which is about memory. Um, and I'm thinking about a project uh, by one of my colleagues, um, Amy Hemray. Uh, she uh, um, Actually, I'm, I need to be sure, and I apologize, Amy, if I'm, I believe you actually go by they, them, uh, but they uh, have put together an archive of experiences by disabled faculty, students, people in general, about their experiences with accessibility during the pandemic, and it is a, a sort of bank of experiences, and I will, I will get the link to you as soon as I can find it. Uh, I believe it's called the Remote Access Archive, and I could be, I could be wrong, but I think this is one of those projects um, that really, I think is an important one at this moment because we're already beginning to forget, right? In our in our mm -hmm. desire to return to normal. It, it's really interesting, right? To think about the, the cultural urgency to forget in order to return to normal. Um, and I think that that's form of resistance here is an insistence on memory, right? Remembering things perhaps we don't want to remember. Um, and, and I think, having gone through collective trauma and still undergoing it uh, for over the past 18 months, right? I think there's there's anxieties about re remembering, but here is where um, memory is a, is a deeply political and urgent act, in my view. I'm really glad you mentioned Amy Hemray, who was, I think, in a guest on COVID calls in the first three weeks Perfect. of the project. Um, and, uh, Reminding me also, I need to check back in with Amy and and uh, get this work, you know, right back focused. And so um, I'll reach out to Amy and and see a little bit more about that project. Thank you, Travis, for bringing that back and for shining light on Amy's work. So uh, and on Alice Wong's work as well. So I hope people will go and find that work um, after this call. Um, just a reminder: you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Travis Chi Wing Lao today and. Um, as you can tell from the conversation, uh, Travis is a versatile scholar and as well as a poet and has agreed to share some poetry with us here. We have a few minutes left today. Um, maybe you can set it up for us. Um, probably need a whole nother call to talk about how you come into poetry and how it relates to your scholarly work. but. Um, maybe as we flow into this, you can just give us a little setup um, for the work. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to read. Um, having a book come out in the pandemic is such a strange experience, right? Where it feels perverse to be celebrating something when there's just so much suffering going on. But I think uh, as a few of my colleagues put it to me, it's important to celebrate um, every aspect of uh, one's life when you can. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a joy to be able to share this. Um, this is coming from my book in 2020 called Pairing. Um, and it is with Finishing Line Press. Uh, and it's a, it's a small collection of poems um, about the sort of central image of pairing, as in P-A-R-I-N-G, pairing, pairing knife. I'm thinking about this image of fruit. And when you, part of what it means to grow up is to pair away at parts of yourself, parts of your past. Um, it, but these are also the very protective layers that enable you to navigate hostile worlds, um, dangerous, risky worlds, to use the word risk again. 
Um, so I thinking I was thinking a lot about that experience of growing up um, as a queer, uh, disabled person of color, uh, having grown up in the South. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, uh, and I I was thinking a lot about that in in especially with what was happening during COVID. Um, a lot of these poems were written before that, but it was weird how some of them resonated uh, with that, with the pandemic in very sort of direct ways. Um, I'm indebted a lot to the work of HIV AIDS poets, particularly um, poets like Paul Manette um, and Tom Gunn, who wrote um, what get uh, colloquially referred to as sickbed poems, uh, poems about mourning and suffering, um, but are also about um, community and kinship. And I thought I'd read um, two poems that are from that tradition. Um, and this uh, this poem is entitled The Sick Rose, uh, and it's named after a William Blake poem of the exact name. Peril is an intimacy, tightly coiled, a way of safely occupying a fixed thing. When it wriggles, thrashes for the right to live how it knows best, even if it is a self-containment it cannot afford. It claims the body as it tries to resolve itself with other bodies, failed measures, a faulty kindling in the interim, holding over that holds really nothing but an inner flower left untasted behind a guard of worms that reminds it where it came from and where it will return. A bed of crimson joy, spillage that does not destroy. And I was thinking about, in this case, having something like an invisible disability or a latent condition that is not obvious to others, the experience of living peril, risk, and fear and not have it be apparent to others. Uh, and it was it was such, such a striking poem uh, by Blake that I was thinking of regarding sort of a worm uh, in this rose. And it, it, it just really spoke to me. Hmm. The other poem that I wanted to share is, um, I mean, truly after the tradition of six be sick bed poems, um, and this is uh, still life, um, and it's after a poem by Tom Gunn. Who am I to consign to dull wax a life that refuses to still? Living is about waxing before the waning comes, before the lids tighten into murders, indexing a tremor that fruits without notice until its warm presence insists. Beside me, he wanders until he finds his breath, labor in spite of his own knack for obscurity, a choreography of suffering in the precise angling of his head, arrested and reared back, trammeled by fields of pain from which there is no return, only the violation of a contract as a lifelong breather. He who must now consent to the resignation of a mouth, one no longer able to be shaped into its natural, joyous O. Oh. That poem was written um, in honor of uh, a partner of mine who lived with HIV AIDS most of his life. Um, and uh, I wanted to document uh, those 
later days. Um, this is, of course, written ironically at the same time that Trump disbanded the HIV AIDS Commission. Um, and it, it just felt all too timely. Um, but yeah, those were two poems that I felt fit in this collection. And I had no idea um, the COVID implications until I was well into the process of putting this together. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing those. And I hope people will get this book. It's titled Pairing and it appeared last year. And what was the name of the press again, Travis? Finishing Line Press. Finishing Line Press. Okay. Um, violation of a contract as a lifetime breather. Is mm -hmm. that, did I get that line right? I, I mean, as somebody who has terrible memory, it's incredible you, you, you recalled that so quickly. Yes, that's that. Because is it, made, it made that, it, that's how poetry works. It's, it's, it just gets, it, it, it makes things happen that you don't expect. It draws things together that you didn't see somehow connected. I think in some ways it speaks, that line to me, yeah, thank you for that. I need more time with that, but I, it's, there's a lot to think with there. Thank you. And I wonder if you, I've, I've talked to other um, artists through this time about their artistic practice through the pandemic. Did you find it liberating or did you find it, I guess I don't want to force you into a duality here, but, but it, was it somehow liberating or was it, others have said it's a little oppressive. Like I'm, I've got all this time, I'm supposed to be making art, but like, I just want to binge watch, you know, Deadwood or something like it, has, it hasn't worked the way. Where do you fit? Maybe it's more of a spectrum of, of how art has functioned for you and through this time. How's it, how's it worked for you? I return to that description I, I gave earlier about my pandemic experience, which is it's sort of almost oppressive banality where every single day is an easy replication of the day before where I don't feel motivated to write about an experience that is actively happening to me. Um, and it's also why I avoided writing about the pandemic in any sort of real way until that, uh, that COVID racism essay, because it felt to me um, too soon, right? It was really remarkable to me to see how many poets immediately had pandemic poems about the pandemic. And I, for me, when I'm going through something like that, that is shifting on a daily basis, when so many experiences, um, so much of my life path changed in this process, it felt perverse to sort of sit down and write about it. I was I was absolutely not prolific during this time. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote maybe two to three poems that I kept. The rest were sort of free writes that I have filed away. I've learned in, in especially in our profession, never to delete anything because it can no. be later. Uh, but I have sort of, a, I guess, a, a record of my thinking at the time, but none of it actually became uh, poems that I, I would send out or, or put into a collection. And I, I wonder if it's about time that I, uh, I need, I, I can maybe revisit them now with a little bit of emotional and temporal distance. Uh, but I, I really struggled in the pandemic to write. I appreciate your advocacy for for patience, though, and and you know earlier your your statement about the insistence on on, on memory as a form of resistance and and slowness of work. I mean, I've been doing this COVID calls now for a while, and I was asked not that long ago to you know share some thoughts about it, and I was completely unprepared. <laughs> I said, I don't think I have anything to say about COVID. They said, what are you talking about? You talk about COVID all day, every day. I said, I just don't think I have anything to say. <laughs> and and I, 
and I had to go and scrutinize myself a little bit about that. And I thought, and that's what you provoked me to sort of articulate this is like, um, living through it and documenting it doesn't mean you're ready necessarily to have something analytical. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the impulse is wrong too, right? That we need to have sort of an immediacy of response, right? And um, I mean, one of my other pet peeves is the sudden um, explosion of people who have become COVID commentators. Um, my favorite one is uh, the fact that uh, Slavoj Žižek wrote two books on COVID and it was literally not even six months into the, 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 the entire pandemic, but has a full uh, book of philosophy on it. Um, it. It just to me is so antithetical to what slowness does, which gives us a kind of critical um, distance to be able to think about an event that's actively unfolding. I just, I can't process things that quickly. You, you wrote about it again. I think another great essay, <laughs> I think it, the title is against the hot take. Yes. I love it. Which is also the sort of play on the philosophy. I see what you're doing there, you know, and, and, and even self scrutinizing this idea of, of developing a position on the hot take forces you into that sort of media ecosystem in of itself and twitter does that as well but i i enjoy twitter as a space to to be creative not to be authoritative I, and others use it in different ways and public health professionals have tried to have used many quite effectively use twitter as a public health communication instrument this time mm -hmm. but it's it's also a space where anybody can wade in there and say hey i'm not a vaccination expert but i've read you know two articles in the new york times let me tell you what i think about what the cdc needs to do it's like mm -hmm. Maybe just say that to whoever's sitting next to you instead of putting it out there. Um, we need to wrap up um, a great discussion in which I've learned a lot. Just one, you know, final, final thing for you. What's um, finishing up this book project? What's what's moving and circulating for you next? Next big project? Are, are you at liberty to say? Yes, I mean, I uh, I'm one of those people that cannot work on a single large project and have it be the single thing I focus my attention on. Um, I, because of the nature of the academic job market, right, I had to even speculate on a second project well before I even really conceptualized and made that transition between dissertation to first book. But um, I'm thinking a lot about chronic pain um, and my relationship to it as someone who has lived with um, scoliosis related disabilities for most of my life. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of confronting the profound irony that I have talked about pain in poetic forms, but not very much in my academic scholarship. Um, and I, I'm, I'm doing a similar thing to my first book about thinking thinking through history, how we got to a certain moment. And this particular moment is not anti-vaccination, but um, the opioid epidemic, right? How did we get to that ideologically? Uh, and what are the transitions uh, and transformations in the way that we conceive of pain in that 18th and 19th century moment with the rise of surgery uh, and anesthesia um, that we now live with, right, in terms of medicalizing pain. Um, so I'm, that project is in its very early, very, very early um, form, uh, but I've given some talks on it and I, I feel like it's a book that I need to write for myself and it, it's a weird experience now um, to have the security to say that, to say that I can think about my career in, in a longer trajectory and realize that I can do projects that mean something to me um, and not feel apologetic about that, which is a great feeling. Uh, and it's sad that the profession sometimes makes us feel otherwise. I'm glad you have that that freedom and it's going to be good for all of us. And, and um, 
can't wait to read it and can't wait to, to read the vaccination work as well. And we'll keep up with your essays on in Synapsis. Um, just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just a little programming note, actually starting in just 10 minutes, um, I'm doing a second COVID Calls episode today. I'll be talking with Harris Solomon about uh, COVID and India, and we're talking particularly about intensive care units in India. So please do join me back on COVID calls for that in just just 10 minutes. But I want to thank my guest, uh, Travis Chiwing Lau, for this discussion today. Um, thanks for you know touching on so many different aspects of the work you do, and for sharing the poetry as well, Travis. Thank you so much. It's it's really been a joy to be in conversation. And um, for folks who are listening right now, uh, please feel free. Uh, my inbox is yours. So feel free to ask any questions that maybe I didn't quite touch on, or if I was not quite as coherent as I could be in the sum of my answers. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.